You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. As we continue in a series discussing uh, failure and the book of 2 Corinthians, I want to engage us this morning in a conversation on discouragement. I wish I weren't such an authority on the topic, but I've earned an advanced degree in discouragement. And whenever I get discouraged, I ask myself two questions. First of all, what does it take to stop me? And secondly, what should it take to stop me? It's interesting that we have an experience of Jesus Christ as we read the gospel stories as one who is stopped by nothing. Uh, the resurrection accounts tell us that Jesus has not, not even stopped by death itself. And one of the scenes, the end of the Gospel of John, that I find fascinating, Jesus enters a room that is locked. It's as though he walks right through a wall. And if Jesus can walk through walls, it's not because his resurrected body lacks the substance to find the wall and interference. It's because it has so much substance, that the material of the wall is as nothing to him, and he passes right through. The Apostle Paul knew something about discouragement. The great pit bull of the New Testament says, uh, we do not lose heart. There's something he knew that allowed him to persist, to continue to move through adversity after adversity after adversity, because here was a man who faced disappointment. His reputation was that of the apostle who fails. Paul, you just fail too much. He's the apostle who suffers. He's the apostle who meets with discouragement. He has every right and reason to do so. And yet he says, we do not lose heart. Well, let's uh, look at uh, this bit of text that I just quoted and see if we can understand. What is it that Paul knows that allows him not to lose heart? Would you open up your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18? You'll find that on page 939 of the Pew Bible. And if you're able, let's stand together as God's people and read this text aloud. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. When we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Let's listen carefully. We're reading God's holy word. So we do not lose heart. Even though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory Beyond all measure, because we look not at what can be seen, but at what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what we just read, the word of Jesus never will. Please be seated. We do not lose heart. Paul says. Why? Well, look at the verse that follows. He, can, he, he tells us, he says, for this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. Wow. 
What does he mean by that eternal weight of glory? Well, to get at that, I would like to share with you a fable. And then I want to draw three implications from our text with that in the background. Uh, First, the the fable. And and, uh, I want to take you on a little bit of a journey here, uh, if it's safe to do so, on the 4th of July across the pond to the motherland, England, and back in time to the year 1961, where we find ourselves in the study of a retired professor, C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, in 1961, was asked by uh, his publisher to uh, edit some of his essays. And so we find him sifting among manuscripts, uh, looking for choice candidates to revise. And he comes upon an essay called Transposition. Transposition was published in 1949 uh, in a collection of essays called The Weight of Glory. It was actually a sermon that he had preached in 1944. And he stops as he, as he finds this text and he says, you know, uh, this one could be improved. And, and the improvement that he offers the essay Transposition is an insertion which is really just a fable, a couple pages, and it's a fable, it's a thought experiment. He says uh, in the revised essay, let me ask you to imagine a woman who is unfortunately imprisoned in a dungeon. She's taken into the dungeon, and there she gives birth to a son, a boy who grows up in the dungeon. And he knows nothing of the outside world. All he knows is this cold, dark space. There's a little bit of grating above through which streams some sunlight. There's hay on the floor, stone walls around. He knows himself and his mother. Uh, But that's pretty much it. Now, as it happens, Lewis asks us to uh, consider, this woman was an artist. And she was able somehow to uh, smuggle into this cell a box of pencils and a pad of paper. And this was a woman of hope. She believed that someday she and her son would be living again in the outer world, that which the boy had never experienced. And so as he grows... She hopes to describe for him the nature of reality as she had known it outside of the dungeon. She does this using the pad of paper. She sketches with her pencil images that he's never seen to inflame his imagination with the wonders beyond. She tries to draw a river or a field with waving grain, mountains, uh, maybe even the waves of the ocean, trees, all of these things. And he tries to believe his mother's images of this world beyond, but one day he stumbles. He says something that gives her pause. And she says, oh, no, no, no. My, my son, you, you, you sound like you think that the world beyond is described by lead pencil lines. She says, it's not like that at all. That's just the way I've shown it to you. But in fact, out there, there are no pencil lines at all. Everything has its own substance and brilliance and color to it. Well, when he hears this, his whole image of reality beyond the dungeon just collapses. And here I want to read to you uh, Lewis's own words in transposition. What, says the boy, no pencil marks there? And instantly his whole notion of the outer world becomes a blank. For the lines by which alone he was imagining it now have been denied of it. 
He has no idea of that which will exclude and dispense with the lines, that of which the lines were merely a transposition. The waving treetops, the light dancing on the weir, the colored three-dimensional realities which are not enclosed in lines, but define their own shapes at every moment with a delicacy and a multiplicity which no drawing could ever achieve. The child will get the idea that the real world is somehow less visible than his mother's pictures. In reality, it lacks lines because it is incomparably more visible. So this is the fable that Lewis shares with us in transposition that he adds to the essay. What does it tell us about this eternal weight of glory that Paul says keeps him from losing heart? Well, three implications. And the first one is this. You and I have our being at once in two worlds. You and I have our being at once in two worlds. We have to be careful with the way we talk about this. There aren't really two realities. There's only one reality, but it's as though uh, we, we experience them through different perceptions or different experiences, so we can speak of them as distinct worlds. This is uh, the way that Paul begins to talk about uh, reality here at the end of chapter 4, where he gives us a stream of antitheses polar opposites, seemingly. If you look at chapter 4, verse 13 and following, we hear him talking about an inner nature and an outer nature, something that's slight, something that's weighty, something that's temporary, something that's eternal, a reality that's seen and a reality that is unseen. And if you let your eye flow down into chapter 5, you'll notice this continues with the earthly and the heavenly. It's as though there's... A world within a world, and we see the inner world, but we're not able to see what's beyond the outer world. Well, this is very hard for us to believe for a number of reasons, that this world that we perceive with our senses is not all that there is. And this is for a number of reasons, but one of them is simply that you and I are products of the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment is a, is a great gift. It was the Enlightenment that taught us to use scientific discovery to learn more about the wonders of this world. But that will only take us so far. And if we cannot acknowledge the limitations of the scientific method, then we will begin to think that we can only know that which, the, uh, which can be empirically verified, it can be observed. But we don't want to make that mistake. If we do, we consign ourselves to the minority of all human beings that have ever lived because cultural anthropologists will tell us that wherever human beings have been found, almost universally across time and from culture to culture, we have believed that the experiences of love and justice, flourishing, life, freedom, all have their home in a place beyond this place. And so, even though we can look at a human being under the influence of love, and we can measure dopamine release, and we can say, yes, there is love, we dare not think that that's all there is to love. 
And even though we can look at a human brain under imaging and see neurons firing uh, when it remembers something, we dare not think that that electricity is all that there is to memory. If there is something more. There is another world that is making contact with ours. And, and, and C.S. Lewis calls the relationship between these two worlds transposition. What does he mean by transposition? Well, we transpose something to something else. And, and transposition for him is an adaptation from a richer medium to a lesser medium. Uh, for example, if you were to transpose a language, uh, a statement in a language that had 20 characters to a, a statement in a language that only has five characters, you would reduce it from a, a richer medium to a lesser medium. And then he offers us two illustrations why we might understand, even beyond the Enlightenment, why it is so hard for us to believe that there is another world. And the first one is musical. Imagine that you have heard a beautiful orchestra play an original uh, uh, um, piece of music, fully instru uh, uh, instrumented. And yet you were asked to transpose that for the piano, a single instrument. Were you to do so and play that for someone who had never heard the original orchestra, they would hear the music. It's the real piece of music. But it's so impoverished by the reduction and the loss of all the other instruments that they could hardly believe you were telling them there's something so much more than that. In fact, for a person, Lewis says, who didn't even believe in the existence of other instruments like a flute or a violin, they would have an even harder time understanding what you're talking about. And another illustration that Lewis gives us, takes us into that pad of paper that the mother is drawing on. Imagine he suggests that you were somehow a two-dimensional creature and you were able to move about on a plane, a single surface, and, and observe life in two dimensions. But someone tried to persuade you that there's a whole other dimension and they tried to represent that dimension by drawing uh, angles. So instead of drawing a, a square, angles are used to make that square appear to be a cube and to appear, have the appearance of dimensionality. At the horizon, to represent a road that vanishes in the distance, the artist, she might draw a triangle. But if, you, if all of your life had been lived in that two-dimensional plane, you would look at those things and you'd not find yourself persuaded. Because you could say, I can explain all of these things within the confines of my two-dimensional reality. Uh, I think that uh, I'm going to read Lewis's words to you because I hear in them the same kind of arguments we hear in the new atheists, so-called today, Dawkins and, and Hitchens. Listen to this. Lewis says, you keep on telling me, this is the uh, two-dimensional creature speaking, you keep on telling me of this other world and its unimaginable shapes, which you call solid. But isn't it very suspicious that all the shapes which you offer me as images or reflections of the solid ones turn out on inspection to be simply the old two-dimensional shapes of my own world as I have always known it. The point being, we can study this world and we can see the phenomenon that might suggest another world, but we can always reduce them to an understanding uh, that's explicable within the terms of this own world. And we can be suspicious of the claim that there is anything else. But Lewis is suggesting perhaps it's not a justifiable suspicion Perhaps it represents a lack of imagination. And so Paul will not yield to this lack of imagination. And he says in verse 18, we look not at what can be seen, 
but at what cannot be seen. Which is a fascinating image when you think about it, to look at what cannot be seen. That's the beginning of Paul's strength in the face of discouragement. He sees through this world to something greater. Well, how is that possible? Moves us to our second implication. First, we saw that you and I have our being at once in two worlds. Now we see that, number two, stories of the greater world allow us to hold what Paul calls a spirit of faith. Stories of the greater world allow us to hold a spirit of faith. Now we find in the, in the cave, in the dungeon, there is uh, um, someone besides this boy as he grapples with reality. He's not alone. He's not left to decipher um, these drawings as they were hieroglyphs on the wall, just symbols that he has to study and investigate. No, there's a, there's a woman, there's a mother in that place. She's a t- storyteller to him. She represents a tradition And he stands in the presence of this tradition and listens to it to make sense of the world that it's claimed is beyond the one he's only ever known. And so Paul says, we listen to the story of redemption. We catch Paul doing it. It's fascinating in verse 13. Notice what he says here. He quotes uh, the tradition of the Bible. He says, but just as we have the same spirit of faith that is in accordance with Scripture, quote, I believed and so I spoke, close Paul is saying, in the midst of my discouragement, I have taken comfort from another source. And he quotes what we discover is Psalm 116, verse 10, uh, the Greek version. And, And so what does it mean for Paul to stand in the presence of a storyteller when he faces discouragement? Well, picture this. I mean, Paul had a lot of things that would have given rise to discouragement in me. In the letter of 2 Corinthians, three times he gives us lists of distress, of trials that he faces. Just here in our own chapter 4, we read he's afflicted, he's perplexed, he's persecuted, he's struck down. If we fast forward to chapter 11, we'll hear him say that he's gone through imprisonments with countless floggings and often near death. Five times I have received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. For a night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from bandits, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and sisters, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, hungry and thirsty, often without food, cold and naked. And besides, I am under daily pressure because of my anxiety for all the churches. Think there's room for discouragement? I mean, I can come up with a pretty good list, but that's a good list. And so just take anything off that list that you want. Let's say adrift at sea. Okay, so, so let's picture Paul in the midst of that, what would be a discouraging moment. He holds on to a, a bit of wreckage that's floating, and there he is in the Mediterranean Sea, the great Apostle Paul, floating around. And he thinks to himself, wow, this seems like the end for me. It seems like uh, the story of the, chapter of, of the Apostle Paul has just come to its last chapter. But he remembers another story. He remembers that he's living his life in the presence of a tradition that speaks of a greater story of redemption. And in his mind, he goes back to what may have been a memory verse for him. 
Psalm 116. Let me tell you about that psalm that apparently comes to Paul's mind in the midst of distress. It's a psalm of thanksgiving. It's a psalm in which somebody in grave danger decides to keep faith despite the apparent inevitability of his own demise. Psalm 116 and verse 3 says, The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered and distress in anguish. But in verse 10, he gets to the place where he says, I kept my faith. And this is the part Paul is quoting. where he's, I kept my faith. Even when I said, I am greatly afflicted. Verse 11, I said in my consternation, everyone is a liar. It's interesting there. He's got a kind of a reputation. Voices around him are telling him, this is the end for you, psalmist. You're going down to death with this one. But he says, he says, I resisted that and all the voices within me. I said, everyone is a liar. There's one voice that I will acknowledge. It's the voice of the tradition. I kept my faith. The tradition reminded the psalmist that, you know, the one to whom I pray in this crisis is the one who made me in love, is the one who redeemed my people through the Red Sea, is the one who promises a future for me no matter what. That is what I will believe in the midst of this distress. It's what Paul calls the spirit of faith. And so Paul, in the midst of his hardship, says, I've got that same spirit. I, I choose to live by it, verse 13. And so I say with Scripture, I believed... That is, that Jesus is the one who died for me and who lives for me and brings me back to resurrection life. And so I spoke the good news. He's, he's believed the story of redemption. He's heard the tradition and chooses to live by that word, not the word of discouragement in his life. So Paul says, the one to whom I pray is the one who made me in love. It's the one who redeemed me in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the one who has promised me a great future. So we're beginning to see how Paul faces discouragement. Through the story of the tradition, he begins to understand that his experiences are, even his experiences are transpositions of a greater, more glorious world in which he lives. His narrative is a part of this broader narrative Described by the story of redemption. So three, we finally come to this third implication. Paul says, he understands that he's in a world within a world. He's coming to see his own experiences as mere figures and shadows of this great world. But three, holding the spirit of faith produces in us the glory of the greater world. Holding the spirit of faith produces in us the glory of the greater world. It's interesting to me that this sermon called Transposition really gripped C.S. Lewis. It's in some way definitional for all of his other work. Uh, when he preached it, it was Pentecost Sunday, uh, 1944. The darkest days of the Great War in England. And... But, you know, C.S. Lewis was not a clergyman, and he did not like to preach. But he could be imposed on, just as he was on this occasion. And as he stood to deliver this sermon, even if there wasn't a sense of discouragement or emotion in the room, something came over Lewis as he preached. 
Because we, we understand that partway through the sermon, he got choked up and could not continue on. And he stopped and pulled away from the pulpit. And the chaplain rose to his feet and uh, to Lewis's defense and called the congregation to sing a hymn and give Lewis enough time to recompose himself and finish the sermon, which he did. But there was something that moved Lewis when he preached this sermon. And again, in 1961, as we find him at his desk, flipping through all of the essays that he might choose to, to edit, this one moves him. It's a moment of great discouragement in Lewis's life. 1961 is the year after he lost his wife, Joy, to cancer in 1960. In 1961, Lewis is very ill, and he'll only live another two and a half years. So maybe we ought not to be surprised that there's something special about this essay transposition. And, interestingly enough, the fable that he edits in, he edits in nearly the exact spot where he got choked up and broke off his preaching that day at Oxford. What is it about this transposition that grips Lewis? Well, I think it's this. I think it's Jesus Christ. I think in the moment of preaching this sermon, as sometimes a preacher does, he awakens to the truth of what he's saying. Hardly adequate to the words he's articulating, but at that moment he realizes that Jesus Christ is the breach between the two worlds. Jesus comes from the world of glory into the world of shadows, not just to tell us that there is another world, not just to tell us that our lives participate in the movements, the story of that other world, but actually to bring the glory of that other world into our lives. I mean, here, here the, the, the fable hardly is hardly adequate to bear the weight of this. I suppose you could say that this young boy who grows up in the dungeon is growing. He's actually growing into the world of color and, and dimension, time and space, the wonders that are beyond the dungeon, though he doesn't know it. And Lewis begins to realize that through holding on to the spirit of faith in Jesus Christ, even in the midst, especially in the midst of those things that discourage us the most, we are being transformed. As he says elsewhere, statues are becoming living people. Now, how does this happen? Be careful, because there's a temptation at this point for, for me, and perhaps for you, to suggest that what Paul is saying is that suffering is redemptive. And I get asked that a lot. When will I know that my suffering is redemptive? And here's my answer. It's never redemptive. Your suffering is never redemptive. That's what I think. It's Jesus Christ who is redemptive. And Jesus is always redemptive. But it's just that there's something about Jesus Christ and our suffering. Ask yourself, how does the glory of heaven penetrate the darkness of this earth? Just look at Jesus' itinerary. His inbound route from the glories of heaven into this world is through weakness, through suffering. That's how he comes in to our reality. And then his itinerary continues. It goes from the cross through the tomb and comes out in resurrection power and glory. It's a circuit. 
And I think the Apostle Paul and I think C.S. Lewis wake up one day and realize in the midst of my suffering and failure, you know what? I think I'm on Jesus' itinerary. I lived for five years in Los Angeles. And when I moved to Los Angeles, I didn't know the tricks of driving in Los Angeles. But they have this thing called a SIG alert. It's when they close down a whole freeway because of accidents. And when there's a SIG alert, then the locals all know to jump off the freeway at the next exit and drive through surface streets, travel through various neighborhoods, and get back to the freeway where you were originally going. Now, I didn't know any of the surface routes or the neighborhoods, and I thought I'll get dreadfully lost. But anything's better than sitting in a parked car on a freeway. So I would get off at the first available exit. And I think, how am I going to get to work? Well, I very quickly learned that all I need to do, actually, is keep my eyes on the bumper of the car in front of me. Because they're going somewhere where I'm trying to get as well. And I could just follow from stop sign to stop sign around all these curves, a winding route, and I found my way through foreign neighborhoods back onto the freeway again. And, and I think that Paul is telling us, Jesus is the one who comes into suffering and draws out the glory of the greater world through resurrection power. If you can find yourself on that itinerary, then you know, you know you're being transformed. You know that the very substance of heaven is invading, transforming, and changing your life. So we can finally come to verse 17 where Paul says, For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. He's actually making a pun. There's a little bit of a joke for Paul in that verse. Because, you see, the, he's writing in Greek, and the Greek word for glory has a root meaning of reputation. What everybody thinks about you, what everybody says about you, what everybody knows to be true about you. But the Hebrew word for glory has a root meaning of weight. He says an eternal weight, heaviness. That's what glory means to the Hebrew speaker. It's not what other people know about you. It's what you know about yourself. It's what God knows about you. There is a substance that's coming into your life. You're gaining in density as you hold to the spirit of faith. Jesus Christ working in you in the midst of opposition and pain. Jesus is becoming the substance of my life. How could Paul lose heart? After every cross, there is always an empty tomb. He says, I'm living this kind of iteration of success and failure, dying and rising. And in it all, I'm carrying the dying and rising of Jesus Christ. So that when we come against the circumstances of the moment, we say, okay, I'm not going to make it through this. But I know what God is doing in my life. He's forging my eternal character. How can you stop a guy like that? What does it take to stop you? I want to close with a charge. And it's this. Dream your dreams, but live your faith. Dream your dreams, but live your faith. You've got to dream. Dream big dreams. Dreams for your health. Dreams for your work. Dreams for your family. Dreams for your friends, your retirement, fun. All of these things. Dream big dreams. But realize that my dreams and yours are nothing more than the figures on the side of a cave wall or a dungeon. 
They're, they're just mere images of that which will truly satisfy us. And know that if we can live our faith in the midst of our disappointments, then something far more important is happening. And that is the substance of that which will truly fulfill us is being formed inside of us. Someday, if you follow Jesus Christ and believe in him, your life will take on all of the solidity of one who literally walks through walls. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the weight of Jesus Christ. We, we know that we see life through pencil lines, light, two-dimensional, colorless. And yet when we look at Jesus Christ, we see the very beauty and the substance of life itself. The world of life with you. We pray that we will look to him. We pray that when we face that which, before which we want to turn away, lie down and just say, I quit, that we will know that this is an opportunity for greater participation in the work of Jesus Christ in our life and in the world. Open us to your transformation. May we listen to the stories of redemption that describe our future, that even describe our present as we live with you through Jesus Christ. And help us to hold out encouragement to one another. When the people around us stumble and face challenges that they don't believe they can face, may we believe for them. May we draw for them images of what their life looks like as they press into Jesus Christ and persevere. We pray these things in his name and for the sake of his glory. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.